0: Anyway, this is a class of Destiny, and it's the class that um, I felt inspired to give. Basically, I was in Kansas City back in May, early May. Ron Flowers and I were to go to this Christian Protectors Conference. And I mainly signed up because I thought, you know, he's a really important part of the team here, and this will give us some windshield time, and we can you know and I was thinking more along those lines because I wasn't sure how much I'd get out of it well this was the time when his father-in-law passed away and and they had to at the last minute he had to back out and couldn't go to this thing and I decided to go ahead and go and it was a really remarkable experience but one of the things that happened there was is that I uh, listened to a man speak and got to talk to him uh, who is a Reformed terrorist the man was raised in Islam his Muammar Gaddafi was like a father to him To give you an idea this this guy was a a You know he they picked him up as a kid on the streets with no parents He was an orphan and they you know They recruited him right in and and raised him to be an Islamic terrorist and that's what he was and um, Jesus got a hold of him i mean in a big big way now i have a video with his testimony on it and everything well some of the things he told us i just knew with the help of the holy spirit that he wasn't lying you know the things he was saying were true and this is not to say what you know because the guy spoke for hours so how can i condense it into a couple of sentences so that you can understand why i believed what i was hearing just know this, not everybody who is Islamic is bad. Not everybody who calls themselves Muslim is bad. You know, that's just not how it is. But but what he says is, is that comparatively speaking, there's huge differences between Islam and Christianity, Islam and Judaism. And the one thing we cannot afford to do, as Christians especially, is to believe that it's all the same God and we're all going to the same place because that's just not so. I mean, it really just isn't so. And this is not like I said. I, I I know this topic and other topics like it. There's always a risk of sounding a little bit, you know, paranoid or or racist or or any other kind of ist. You know, but the reality is is that. We need to understand the difference between Islam and Judeo-Christian belief and how it happened that we ended up these thousands of years later still at odds. You know, and, and those of us who are going to Israel, you'll see it up close and personal. And, and actually, it'll almost certainly be very peaceful because it's such, there's so much tension that they manage it really, really well um it's like my dad used to say my dad worked in the steel industry and you know i'd see these pictures of these big crucibles pouring out molten steel and everything and i said dad that just seems so scary he said you know you have more chance of getting hurt in your own house than you do in a steel mill it's because everybody there knows how dangerous it is just nothing you do in a steel mill that doesn't require careful precautions where you're very reckless and careless around familiar environments and it's kind of like that. When you get to Jerusalem especially, you see all of these balance issues, all these things going on behind the scenes and not so behind the scenes that, that are how they manage to keep the peace. But why is that tension there? And what's going to make it go away? Is there an end game for Islam that's going to make them feel like everything's okay now, we don't have to be at war with anybody else? What is that end game? Is there an end game for Christianity and Judaism? And what's that look like? And how does Islam fit into that? So that's why we're having this discussion, because you can't really do anything in America without, at this point in our history, being affected by the threat of terrorism. I mean, 9-11 changed everything, didn't it? It just was a world changer. And then people like Bethany here grew up with it. And that's all they know. Is life under that I mean I've traveled uh, I started my international traveling a year after 9-11 so I went from you know like if you want to take a plane ride somewhere you just walk down the concourse and got on the plane and you left and if your family came down to see you off you know they could go in the plane with you and make sure you're comfortable in your seat you know no it's all different now right it's all different and and the worst part about this trip we're getting ready to make as far as i'm concerned is just getting there because it's just such a pain in the neck to go to the airport and hope you did everything according to the tsa rules and then to be demoralized and dehumanized by having every kind of scan and you know whatever and 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 to feel stupid because maybe like i did on my last trip i carried some water bottles in with me and they said you can't go any further with those and so here i've got you know a couple bucks worth of bottled water they didn't make me throw it away and I just felt so stupid you know so why no well, because a group of Islamic terrorists a group of people in the name of some form of Islam performed one of the most dastardly things that's ever happened in human history that's why so understanding that is what this is about and I'm taking it from Rabbi Lappin which means that it probably has sort of a pro-Judaism slant to it. But what, what I'm really doing in this is claiming the Bible as the source of truth. And the reason I like Rabbi Lapin is because when he talks about what the Bible says, I, based on my already pretty comprehensive education and experience, and then listening to him and getting it from a Jewish perspective, I hear truth. You know, and I know the scripture is true, and I know that, that this really is God's book and God's language being imparted to us. And it doesn't mean, for example, that every word um, in every version of the Bible or every translation of the Bible is precisely correct. What it's say, what it, what it really saying is, is that God uses this book as a way of communicating who God is and what God values and how God operates. And so when it say, when I say it speaks truth, I mean that reading your Bible will reveal to you as much as any human can know about God and our relationship with God. That's the point. So I want to know how the Bible wants me to deal with the threat of evil forms of religion. And the most pervasive one right now is evil forms of Islam. So that's the justification behind it. And listening to this man was incredible. And I got news for you. If you like this, then when we do our winter class, I have a DVD set and some study guide material from him that we can look at together. And you can see what you think. And again, it isn't meant, in fact, what his message is over and over again is the vast majority of people who are Muslim are just as on the fence about most of it as Christians and Jews vast majority of Jews, Rabbi Lappin says this all the time, the vast majority of Jews are atheists or they're just irreligious. They claim Judaism in a uh, cultural sense. I, I was raised in a Jewish home. My family has a Jewish name. You know, I go to the major holidays. And guess what? We Christians are the same way. You know, Courtney and I were just joking about it this morning. We have what we call CEOs. That's Christmas and Easter onlys, right? And then you have your regular irregulars. They come if they don't have any other priorities, I'm not criticizing them, I'm just saying that watered-down religion exists in all of the world's major religions and most people practice a watered-down version of their religion. And what he says is that every one of those people who practices a watered-down Islam is somebody who could be converted to a Christian because their spirit is open, you know, and they, they want truth as much as anybody. So even if we talk about this in terms of radical Islam, and that's just like radical Christianity, you know. Bethany and I have talked at different times. What's that church in Kansas called again? Uh, you know, the one that protests the, ho- the the funerals. Westboro, Westboro Baptist Church, and they go around, uh, you know, to widows and mothers and fathers of military uh, personnel who have died in combat for this country, and they you know, berate them and belittle them and and treat their loved ones as though they did something wrong, you know. And it's like, okay, those people call themselves Westboro Baptist Church, but just how Christian do they seem to you? How much do they really represent what most Christians or what most Baptists believe? My, My best friend from high school is a Baptist minister. And, you know, he's Southern Baptist, so naturally he thinks they're the only religion that's got this right. But when he's honest with me and we're talking privately, you know, he'd be the first one to tell you that, that being Baptist isn't nearly as important as being saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And it really doesn't matter that much whether you're sprinkled or whether you're dunked. it just matters if you're Baptist, you know. And so he jokes like that with me. But at the end of the day, he would be appalled that those people call themselves Baptists. In the same way, Islamic people will find much of what the terrorists do and the extremists do offensive. So just be aware of that as we go into this study. So we're not trying to validate some sort of prejudice or hatred towards Islam. We're not. But we are trying to find what the Bible calls the truth about these things. Fair enough? We did some homework last week. I know Connie did her homework. Uh, Some of the things we're going to share are because it's based on rabbinical study some of the things we're going to share come from the rabbinic tradition so just for the sake of of putting us all on the same page a rabbi is a teacher that's what the word means and here's really an interesting thing for you there are rabbinical schools but there are no particular associations in other words i'm associated how do i say this without going off to la la world here. Part of the reason you assume that I know what I'm doing is because the United Methodist Church has credentialed me and because I'm part of an affiliation that has credibility or used to. I mean, I'll take that off the recording, Dan. So, you know, so we have, you know, I have a certain credibility because of my association and the credentials that they've awarded me based on the requirements that I fulfilled. Rabbinical credentials don't work that way. Um, a person can claim to be a rabbi and as long as a group of people are willing to follow them then they're the rabbi. Um, Other synagogues are a little more particular and they go to Cincinnati where there's a huge one of the biggest and best known uh, rabbinical schools in the country. Uh, Yeah Uh, that school up there is remarkable. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe a lot of people would find that interesting, but Cincinnati is a major Jewish center outside of the big cities where you expect to find them, you know. Louisville's got a lot of Jewish people as well. But anyway, the, so, the, so the mere fact that someone is called a rabbi doesn't necessarily mean that they're qualified. But then again, there are people who call themselves pastor who aren't necessarily qualified, and as long as a group of people follow them. You know, there was an incident here in commun- in this community a few weeks ago where a, quote, pastor was arrested because he failed to report something that he had been aware of regarding some child abuse from someone on the staff at the church. And one of the things that came out was he's not credentialed by anybody. You know, he doesn't have any particular qualifications. Doesn't mean I think I'm better than him or, or, or anyone else. It just really says that, you know, if something bad happens to you, you probably like to have something behind you that gives you a certain level of credibility and a certain resource for defending yourself against accusations. And stuff. Yeah. It, well, you know, I've always said the United Methodist Church is, is I got one of the best union jobs in ministry. Because I work for the United, I'm a, I'm a union contractor for the United Methodist Church. Shiloh pays my salary, but I'm basically under contract by, you know, I, I don't say that I like that, but that, that's part of why you can trust me. That's part of why when you call a plumber or an electrician, you want to see certain credentials on their paperwork and so forth that tell you that there's a whole organization that's telling you these guys are qualified. They really know what they're doing. Insurance, same way, right? And car sales, you know, you get certain certifications. So most of us understand that. I've taken that too far. So, understand then that the rabbinical tradition is ancient, that as long as there has been a diaspora, there have been rabbis. What do I mean by diaspora? I should have started this way last week. Fits and starts on the first nights are always typical. So, but think back to the time when the Babylonian Empire has conquered now both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. So they had a civil war and it was north against south except the south was the stronger instead of the north in the case of Israel and Judah. And so Jerusalem and Judah collapsed later than the northern kingdom of Israel. But eventually they both capitulated and the first thing a conquering empire does is they disperse the people the first the first thing you want to do is assimilate them into your culture so you spread them all over the place you take guys like Daniel and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego right and you take them because they're smart and they're young and they're gonna be leaders and you bring them to the Empire into the headquarters of the Empire and you train them how to be perfect Babylonians you know and then you do that that way so that nothing ever stays the same and that, that was the idea but the Jews refused to give up their culture They were not going to let themselves lose their devotion to Yahweh, the law of Moses, and all of that. So what they did was they formed synagogues, which is really just a Hebrew word for gatherings. And in those gatherings, they would take the elder scholars, the ones who were the oldest, and who had been learning about the Bible and and the law and all of that the longest, and they said, teach us. that's really the rabbinical tradition right there. And what they realized at the time that the diaspora happened was that their law and their traditions were going to get lost if they didn't start passing on their interpretation of these things. So these commentaries occur. Now commentaries on Scripture are just as common among Christians as they are among Jews. So don't think for a minute that... The fact that they've been making commentaries that we would call uh, the Midrash or something like that, that that somehow that's mysterious. That's really just the elder scholars who sat around and talked with each other about what this passage probably means, agreed on and wrote down, you know, and at the risk of sounding, you know, the slightest bit uh, cynical, it's just part of Jewish tradition to have a really long, long discussion before you agree on anything. So these these commentaries are old because like most commentaries one commentary in one section has an answer to the question asked to so and so and then another commentary in another section has that person's answer to the other guy's answer and then the third commentary has that person's opinion about those two guys answer you know i think you're both wrong here's what it says so that's the history of the rabbinical tradition. So how do we know certain things? Because they wrote it down and they had access to information we didn't have. We saw an example of that in the service on Sunday because when I was giving you the message, I was telling you about how, uh, if you'll remember, there was this passage from the first chapter of Isaiah that said, you know, your prayers really offend me. You pray like Sodom and Gomorrah prayed. Well, how many people knew Sodom and Gomorrah actually prayed to God? I mean, who knew that one of the reasons that Abraham was arguing with God about saving those cities was because he knew they worshiped God. Difference is God knew their worship was phony baloney, right? But then if you start doing all your cross-referencing, you find out that if you go forward in the Bible, people refer back to the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah and they say more about it. And so we read in Ezekiel, so we read in Isaiah, and then we read in Ezekiel more details about what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis, which means somebody, when they were writing that down, knew more, and they added it in. How did they know? If it wasn't in the original scripture text, how did they know? And then Jude comes along, and that's like one of the very last books in your Bible, that's a New Testament book. And Jude comes along and he says even more about Sodom and Gomorrah. Where did he learn that? At Sunday school. You know, he, he learned that at, because when kids were, you know, ever since the diaspora, which is the dispersal, ever since then, kids went to rabbinical school. They, they went to, to Hebrew school, basically. Rabbis, and most of them were, were bivocational, you know. So the rabbi worked at a business during the week and then he came in and he taught the Sunday school class every week. Taught them to read the Hebrew, taught them what the scriptures mean, taught them the law, learned all of that, got them ready for their bar mitzvah, their bar mitzvah, you know. So it's starting to sound familiar to you. It's not that different from what we do. And it's why you can trust when we read something about, like, how we understand that Hagar was an Egyptian princess. Well, it doesn't say that in the Bible but apparently that was established by the rabbinical tradition a long long time ago so they must have known something maybe it was written down somewhere maybe maybe it was a oral tradition that became a written tradition oral traditions are very accurate you know they really are a lot of people don't realize that but a written tradition can be inaccurate as quickly as it goes to press because then it's stuck there If they write something down wrong in that book and then a thousand of them get distributed, then a thousand wrong versions are going to be out there unless somebody really carefully goes and pulls them off. On the other hand, if I come over to your house and I start telling you a version of a family story and I get one of the details wrong, Bethany here will pipe up and say, No, dad, it was a Tuesday, not a Thursday. You know, you see what I mean? So oral traditions, huh? It's self correct. Yeah, oral traditions self correct. So that actually gives you more credibility for the rabbinical traditions because they were oral long before they ever were written down. So you tracking with me here? This is the groundwork I should have laid last week so that we would be able to understand some of the things we are hearing that aren't necessarily in your scriptures. So you did some homework. What did you find out that you want to share with us? Well,
1: what you said was she was a...
0: Hagar was the daughter of a Pharaoh. Hagar. Well, actually, her official uh, Hebrew pronunciation would be Ha Agar. So. Just like, it, said a Hebrew name. Just like it, do it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I said the other day when I thought I had a bass on my hook and then it was Agar. I said, Ha Agar. Take that off the recording, too. See what you're missing. Don't come to class. Uh huh. It means this is the reward. That's the meaning of ha'agar. hmm And we get that from the midrash. So let's just uh, clarify a couple of, of Jewish and Judaism terms here. So the Tanakh is the word that describes all of the texts and the, and, uh, in the uh, Torah and the, so, so Tanakh actually, I know this and I've forgotten it, but Tanakh actually spells out what books are in there, but Tanakh is this sort of an acronym that's the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, and the Psalms, right? I think that's what it was. But that's what Tanakh covers is basically the Hebrew Bible or what we would call the Old Testament. Okay, so they would call it Tanakh and it's actually an acronym, but it's an acronym for Hebrew words. So, you know, just make sure you choke on anything that's got an H in it and you'll sound like you're speaking Hebrew. Ah! All right. So Torah is the law books. Who knows which ones those are? There are five. The first five, yeah. First five books of the Torah or the law. And in English that would be written with a capital L to represent that. Um, So uh, the Midrash is the one that's quoted by the scholars all the time. It's the one that if you were to go to a synagogue and they read a passage from the scrolls, the rabbi, especially a trained rabbi, would get up and say, now rabbi so-and-so says this about that. Whereas rabbi so-and-so said that. And the interesting thing is, is rabbi one may have said something 2000 years ago about that. Whereas rabbi two might've said it 1700 years ago, rabbi three might've said it 500 years ago. And so it's like in this ongoing commentary and if that seems strange to you, well, look in any pastor's library. I have commentaries by Spurgeon and uh, Clark and some of these guys. And the reason I started my career with those is because those were all cheap because the copyrights had run out on I could buy books like that or even CDs with all that on them for a song. And those commentaries were cheap and easy to acquire because they weren't copyright protected anymore. So they were just basically the cost of distribution. Uh, I, by the way, you want to know why the King James Bible is the most common Bible in, in, out there? There's no copyright on it. That's why. I mean, everybody knows, of course, that that's the one Jesus carried, and that's why it's really the most common Bible out there. Laugh, that's a joke. You know, there are people, at, does anybody know someone who swears the King James Bible is the only correct Bible? Yeah. I mean, we all know people like that, and there's nothing wrong with them because, you know what, if they've come to the Lord and found truth about God in that Bible, then God bless them. Some people find all that ye, thee and thou stuff a little off-putting. So it, it,
1: isn't that what Gideons believe, that the King James is
0: the... Not anymore. The Gideons have really gone through a big change. In fact, our local Gideon camp guy came to see me the other day because the Gideon camps in this area are down to just a few people. I literally like three or four active people. And I really believe in the ministry of the Gideons. They're coming to speak here um, right before we leave on our trip, actually. And uh, I would encourage men to get into the Gideons because it's not just about giving out Bibles. It's also about men being accountable for their Christian walk. And it's a place where you get that accountability and one of their outreaches that they do in order. because, Because every Christian should be accountable for trying to, get out there you know christianity is not meant to be something you keep to yourself and stay home and do it's something you're supposed to go out and share it's something you're supposed to express not just in trying to convince people to believe in jesus but because your life convinces them you believe in jesus so you know businessmen from the community standing on a college campus getting harassed by teenagers with attitudes you know, and hoping just one of them will take this Bible and take it seriously. That that's a courageous thing to do. That shows that you're really serious about this walk with Jesus. So that's the heart of the Gideons' ministry. But they did, uh, like five or eight years ago, something like that. They went ahead and adopted a newer version of the Bible. They don't give out the. Uh, I think it's the NIV. And that's because NIV has reached its sort of saturation point where you can now reproduce them fairly inexpensively. Because when you're trying to give away millions of Bibles all over the world, that's the other issue. (laughs) You've got to be able to do it affordably. So you can't use the latest version like the ESV or something without having to pay quite a bit more because there's still so many people to be paid off. Open your ESV and look at the editor's list in there. Every one of them is getting a piece of the action. It's just the way it is. It's publishing. So, yeah, King James, uh, and, and so all these older commentaries, they're based on the King James Version, and so they read like that. But they still say a lot of the same things. They still tell you that after the Babylonian captivity began, they started meeting in synagogues and writing down things because they realized that they might not get back to the temple anytime soon. And a really old commentary that you can get for you know, the cost of a CD at the library or at the bookstore, rather, you know, um, will tell you that it'll just say, you know, and they were predisposed to, you know, and they use sort of flowery language where, you know, the modern, more expensive one that you get at the Christian bookstore for a ridiculously high price. Um, will tell you the same thing in modern English, you know, and maybe they'll have a picture of some archaeological find that proves that that's true. Okay. It's the difference between the old rabbi comment and the not-so-old rabbi comment, and yet truth is truth, and it translates. It's transcendent. Okay. So the Talmud comprises the Mishnah and the Torah and the Gemara, and the Mishnah and the Tanatic writings are basically uh, they expound on so so Midrash is the official commentary and then the uh, Mishnah is the commentary on the commentary Now, when I took a class on Judaism years ago like early 90s they would draw a little thing on the they, they would say uh, they draw on the board like this and they'd say okay So you have the law, that's here in the inner part, and this is Torah. And then you have the Midrash, which is the official commentary. And then you have the Mishnah, which is popular opinion almost. (laughs) So that's how they would illustrate that in, in a class on Judaism, okay? So if I told you that we knew something about Hagar based on something it said in the Mishnah, then if you were practicing Jew, you'd say, so it might be true. It might not be true. It's just someone's opinion. You know, it's like stop signs in Jasper. Only matters if a cop's watching. On the other hand, if it's Midrash, then it's taken seriously so Midrash and I can actually quote you chapter and verse but then you'd have to have a copy of the Midrash to look this up tells us that Hagar was an Egyptian princess okay so let's get into the study because this is what you really wanted to know about but the groundwork is really important and we're not going to do this level of conversation about the or lecture about the uh, jewish stuff but this is this is to sort of tell you in advance that there will be some things you hear that are not in your bible but they're based on rabbinic tradition okay so you remember the story it's in genesis chapter 16 and it's a little short story about how hagar uh came to be a servant to sarah you remember sarah and abram were very old They didn't have a kid. God made this promise to Abram. They're not worried. They can't figure out how this is gonna work. So Sarah gets this idea that maybe what they should do is have him marry Hagar and have a baby with her and that that'll be how this goes down. So what the Jewish tradition informs us is that Hagar being the daughter of a king and Egyptians in those days thought very highly of Abraham and especially Abraham's God. And we talked a little bit about this last week. I won't go into the long version again, but the thing about Abraham and his Egyptians is that they're not the same Egyptians that Moses knew. They're not the same ones. Um, that's sort of like, and this is a real stretch, but to put it in perspective, it means that, that uh, a complete government change has occurred. And, you know, we've got a brand new Congress seated, a brand new Senate seated and a brand new cabinet and judicial branch and everything set up. They're still using all the same terminology. They're still working in the same offices, but they're a whole new set of people. I mean, that's that's basically what we're talking about over time. Remember, the Egyptians have been around a long, long time and they're still around in some form or another. Over time, the Egyptians that Abraham knew evolved into Hyksos, which is a different brand of Egyptians. They're a different people group that came in and took over Egypt. And they're still Egypt, and they still operate under the Egyptian cultural norms, but they're bringing their own culture in, and that's why this hatred towards the Israelites built up over 400 years okay so at the time that Abraham knows the Egyptians he has very friendly relations with them and the Egyptian Pharaoh you remember what he did he told uh, he Abraham told the the uh, Pharaoh that that Sarah was his uh, sister not his wife because he thought maybe they'd kill him and take her and Pharaoh was really disturbed by this why would you do this to me and what he also says is you know, you, you brought down your God's disfavor on us. And so hidden in the, all of that dialogue is this realization that the Egyptian Pharaoh at the time of Abram really respects the God of Abraham and figures that not only has Abraham betrayed Pharaoh, but he's also betrayed his own God by distrusting him. And he's basically calling him out on it, you know? So, so that's a whole different idea of Pharaoh than what we usually think of because we've had the whole Moses and his Pharaoh, you know, Ramses and all those guys, we've had that drilled into our heads. So we don't even realize that these people aren't the same. It's a much more casual relationship and they're not the massive superpower at this time that they would become later. And um, so here's what the rabbinical tradition says, is that most likely Pharaoh sent his daughter to live with Abraham because he respected him so much. Because he thought that she might learn some things from this guy. Because if you think about it, when you're raising kids, one of the things you're aware of is, is you don't want them to be as just like you. I mean, I hope you don't. I, I don't want my kids to be just like me. I want them to be better than me. That's why I wasn't joking when I said, you're right, she's better than me. It You hope that, right? Every parent wants their children to exceed them. You want to impart those values that you consider sacred that you know are worth transferring to your children, but then you want them to learn things you didn't know and see things you didn't see. And you'd like to manage what those things are because if they manage it, it'll probably backfire, right? How many of you can think back to a troubled child that you knew, maybe yourself, and realize that it had so much to do with the kind of people you were running with, right? You ran with the wrong people, you started getting involved in the wrong sort of things. And the cure is always don't run with them people anymore, right? So let's suppose you're a rich, powerful Egyptian monarch and you want your daughter to absorb a really healthy culture apart from your own so that her per- perspective is broader than your own. And you, go, I really like this Abraham and I like this God of his and I just like the way they do business and those people are really all right. And so the rabbinic tradition says that that's probably why she ended up in their household because it's a great way to learn. And it's very common now in Europe and in American cities in the big cities where the blue bloods and the really wealthy people live, you know, they'll have someone that they call an au pair, you know, sort of a nanny. And very often these people are from wealthy families and they're very well educated. And they're doing this servant role, not necessarily because they need the money, but because they need the exposure. And the parents have very carefully selected this family to hire their child out to, so that their child is going to pick up qualities and and characteristics that you've seen in these people that you'd like for this child to have going forward. So that's kind of how that works. And so this is the interpretation of what happens with Hagar. So she's and that's important to know, because what that tells us is, is she's comfortable in an in a in a high place. She, she's from a rich household. Right. She's, you know, she's comfortable with a different lifestyle because what happens next? Right. Abram marries her and, and her thinking is, is, hey, he's kind of a king my dad's kind of a king remember it's not the egypt that we know more about they're both big shots in their own particular realm and dad has got me in his household and 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 this rich old guy doesn't seem to be getting anywhere with his wife so he's marrying me look at me right and then they have a baby you know and so she's pregnant and and we don't know for sure what's going on but there's a hint in the scripture because Sarah is getting really fed up with Hagar's attitude. So what's Sarah say, Abe, she's got to (laughs) go, you know, and what mama wants, mama gets right. So out she goes, she's out in the wilderness. And here's the hint at what Hagar's problem was an angel appears to her and the angel says, Hagar, Servant of Sarai, I have heard your cries. Two things are being communicated there. Number one, remember your place. And number two, you have been treated unjustly. And we're gonna rectify that situation. Now this also tells you going forward that this race of people is important to God because she had two angelic appearances. You know, that's pretty remarkable when you think about it because she's the Pharaoh's daughter living in Abraham's house, and Abraham's the one with the covenant, but she's getting a kind of covenant of her own because what does the angel tell her about uh, her son Ishmael? Do you remember? He's going to be the leader of mighty people, right? So, so God's saying they're, they're going to be a mighty group. But a God also assigns certain characteristics to them. You know, he, he says they're gonna be this kind of people. And so she gets told, go back to your job, you're a servant. You you were out of you were you're out of line here. You you were out of line, you need to get yourself back in perspective. This isn't about you. You know, how many of us can say amen whenever there's been moments in our lives we've gotten a little bit too uppity, God's had to say, time out, this ain't about you. And God says it in a variety of ways. I've never had an angel appear to me, but I sure felt like God put his thumb on me one day because I went to my knees without being able to help it. It was just like, okay, I'm going down. And, and I had to apologize because I was getting a little bit carried away in my criticism of certain things. And God was saying, do you really think that any of those people that you're criticizing could do this to you if it wasn't within my will? Did you not say, Dan, once upon a time that you were giving yourself to me unconditionally? You were going to go where I sent you, do what I told you to do. Did you not say that, Dan? Because I remember it. And I had to say, yes, Lord, I did say it. And then I had to say, I'm sorry. I know these people seem to be the problem, but I wouldn't be having this problem if it wasn't okay with you. So, yeah, sorry. It's a good thing to have happen to you once in a while. It happened to Hagar. She went back and had that baby. And we don't know exactly how old he was when uh, Isaac came along but Isaac eventually came along and he's the little brother I mean and and Ishmael's the older brother he's like the teenage brother who is way too worldly all right so when you read about him let's see how are we doing so far I've been doing all the lecturing I don't if you haven't been in one of my classes, I have, my, I have these nights when I do a lot of this. And then there's the other nights where I'm just going to ask you all kinds of questions. And, you know, usually we're trying to lay out the groundwork. It's kind of like that. But what you're going to learn about Ishmael is, is that he's kind of a rotten kid. He's just he's a bit of a wild child. You know, he's the one you don't want your kid hanging out with, you know, while all the studious kids are in study hall you know, practicing for the exam or whatever. He's the one's out there in the smoking part of the school. I don't know if they have those now. When I was in high school, they had smoking sections, so our kids could smoke, you know. Because they thought, well, you can't beat them, so we're going to tell them no smoking in the bathroom. You have to smoke outside. Yeah. And so the burnouts were all out in the smoking section, smoking between classes, you know, and being burnouts. And all those good kids, we were doing other things, right? And, you know, so Ishmael's out there in the burnout section smoking between classes and Isaac, he's the good little boy, you know, and Ishmael says, hey, Isaac, come here a minute, man. (laughs) Try this. Just one puff. You'll see. Right. That was kind of what it was like. Okay. And so there comes another issue and another time when Sarah and Abraham both say, yeah, um, you, you guys should move on, <laughs> right? You know, he says, you guys need to move on. This is, this, is a, this is not a productive relationship we have here. And so this is the point at which we begin, begin to see this culture established. And some of the characteristics, do, do anybody, how many of you remember from last week and from your study this week? Because you all did your homework, right? Yeah? Teacher's pet up here. She was in class studying while some of you are out with the burnouts, I know. Don't beat her up after class just because she's teacher's pet tonight, you know, anyway. Um, what what do you remember? What was how was he described? Ruddy complexion. You remember that? He he was described as being you know what does that mean exactly? You know, earthy ruddy. You know, he's he's earthy. Listen, this time of the year, yeah. you can go to the store, or to church, or wherever, and you can tell who works outdoors mm-hmm. and who works indoors, right? You know, uh, Brian Papp, somebody like that comes to church on Sunday morning and, and they they look like they're four shades from changing their ethnicity. Right. Just because they outside. huh? He
1: looks like Seal.
0: Yeah. You know, and and yet there are others of us who are just as pasty and white as we were at the beginning of the summer because we're indoors all the time. Right. So what do we know about? Ishmael he's out and about he's a country boy he's always out running around he's he's like Huck Finn right in fact now that I think about it and and Mark I'm a big Mark Twain fan and now that I think about it Mark Twain was you know there are all kinds of biblical parallels in his stories and you know Mark Twain and uh, or I mean Huck Finn and and uh, Tom Sawyer could have been Ishmael and Isaac that you know because Isaac was crafty you know he it's not like he didn't enjoy running around with Ishmael, because you know that's the problem with temptation, isn't it? The problem is when we run with the wrong people. They always make it seem like it's okay. This is normal. This is just the way it is, kid. You know, right? And and so that's when the wiser, older person, the parent, has to step in and say, "I think you need a new circle of friends. <laughs> We're going to church." Right. Or something like that. So this is the beginning of the differences between Isaac and Abraham or I mean, Isaac and Ishmael. And that's kind of the point where we'll start next week is we'll start comparing those differences and following the chain. So your homework assignment for next week is is learn everything you can about Ishmael. And the reason is because you have to do a little digging to do that. Isaac's pretty easy because, after all, book's about them, you know. So the book's all about his family, but the other stuff is there. So do your homework about Ishmael. Questions, comments, anything is open. We've still got five minutes. Any Anything's game here. I've talked the whole time. It won't always be like this, I promise, but... Well, because you're clever and you say things that inspire us. No, nah, I got nothing. Fine. Okay. <laughs> so we should probably not go home and do the podcast tonight. <laughs> oh, I got
1: plenty to say about that. Oh, okay.
0: When Bethany comes to sit down at the microphone for the C.S. Lewis podcast, she opens up her book and there's always at least three shades of highlighter in the chapter. And Yeah, yeah, go. Um,
1: you were talking about how did Lewis Lewis talk about about? Uh, you said everybody. So some people believe that all different religions believe they all go to the same God. You know, you don't know, see so you were saying it before, which is definitely not true. Uh, I forget, what does he tell is the term for this? Like multicultural areas? What, what is it called? You?
0: Well, I know he's got a really clever quote about that. Um,
1: but I know he wrote stuff about that. But I'm trying to remember the, the actual term of people that think that direction. That no matter what religion you are, it all goes to the same person.
0: I know a modern term is universalism.
1: I think that's what I'm trying to. Think. You know, <laughs> that's just
0: universalism. It, that's basically saying.
1: But was it Lewis or Tolkien? Wasn't one of them dabbling at that point in, in, in one point of their career? Well, I know one's Catholic, one's right. Uh, right, but I, I didn't know. I just,
0: but I, they also, I also had, I had some other friends. friends.
1: Lewis was an atheist right before he, he converted, but... Because Tolkien helped him, correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So... I was just curious. Yeah. If you're, if you're yeah. Like bit, you
0: know. What else? Any any other thoughts?
1: When you asked how old was Abraham when Isaac was born, I just hit it on my iPad here and one says he was 100 and one says he's 116.
0: Way it's old. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's definitely. <coughs> Dad, kid. <laughs> I'm trying to watch the weather over here. I'm tired this kid. Maybe that's why they hired Hagar. You know, she's like, okay, you keep telling me this was God's idea. <laughs> Well, if this comes to pass, you better have some young thing here to take care of this kid, because I can't keep up with no kid. I'm, I'm 99 years old. <laughs> anyway.
1: Well, when I was doing some reading on, on Hagar, uh, one of the, the uh, areas where I got into it said that it, it is thought that Hagar could have been a wedding gift or a, a gift from Pharaoh...
0: Yeah. yeah, that's that's great.
1: I didn't know, I mean, cause some, a lot of the stuff that you said, Connie, mirrors, so I, I know that one of the areas we researched was the same, but I didn't know if you'd seen the same Fine. thing. It's, it's called Shabbat. It was,
0: yeah, if you've done your homework, please share it now. I'd hate for you to get a homework assignment and then not get an opportunity to share what I you learned. That,
1: um, one of the reasons that she went with him was she saw the miracle that God performed for the sake of Sarah and to save her from the hands of the Egyptian king during Abraham's visit when he said that that was his sister. Mm -hmm. And so she said it was better to be a slave in Sarah's house than a princess in my own.
0: Cool. Anything else? Any other learning? All right, here's, here's the closing question and then after you take a stab at this we'll have a prayer and be done. So Rabbi Lappin says, how are your actions influencing coming generations? Think about that. What do you do or have you done that's going to have a direct impact on the generations that follow you? And here's a tougher question. Do you ever give that a great deal of thought? Do you ever find yourself acting impulsively and then suddenly go, wait a minute, if this doesn't work out right, my kids, you know, as a pastor, I've watched so many pastors do foolish and reckless things and wondered at that. And I say to myself, you know, all it takes is for one stupid decision to blow up in your face and your kids have a legacy issue your church has a legacy issue you have a legacy issue not that god doesn't have the capacity to get through it but you've even wounded people's opinion of god because you were supposed to be somebody that represented god well so there's a great deal of pressure especially when you're a public religious figure to be conscious of what you do and how you will, how your actions will impact others. So that's something to think about as we go forward with this class. George, you got a prayer for us?
1: Praise you, God, for each person here in my study group. Thank you for each person's presence and impact in the group. Thank you for what they are doing, what you are doing in them and through them. I claim your promise to be with each of us this week as we share our spiritual journey with others.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.